The Stream of Time. Welcome back to the history podcast, The Stream of Time. I'm your history host, Elliot the Historian. Last episode, Pentecontiatia, Greece in the 5th century BC, I talked about Greece in the first half of the 5th century BC. As we were going through, we were keeping an eye forward to the Peloponnesian War. This episode, we're going to continue that trend, focusing on the middle of the 5th century BC and the tensions that led to the Peloponnesian War. While I'm going to try to keep this episode as self-contained as possible, if you haven't listened to the last episode, I strongly recommend that you do so, as it sets up quite a bit of context for this episode. With that, let's do a recap. The Greek city-states of the 5th century BC had varying forms of government, all of them favored self-rule and were generally only united in times where they faced a common foe. The large and powerful Persian Empire proved to be this foe during the first half of the 5th century. While many of the city-states contributed to the defense of Greece, it was Athens that had proven most instrumental in organizing and mounting a successful defense. The Athenian victories at the battles of Marathon and Plataea on land, and the Battle of Salamis at sea, raised the reputation of Athens. The Athenian navy especially had proven to be unmatched. Athens used this reputation to form the Delian League in 478 BC. The idea of the League was that smaller city-states, such as the island city of Naxos, could contribute either ships towards the running defense of Greece, or a monetary tribute if they didn't have enough ships to contribute. The treasury of the League was held on the island city of Delos, hence the name Delian League. In other words, the League would provide an alliance of city-states whose reason for existence was to oppose the Persian Empire. But even though it was ostensibly a voluntary confederation of city-states, Athens was in charge of the Delian League. The smaller states were voluntarily in the League, and initially were happy to defer to Athens to organize the defense of Greece. But by the 460s, when it was becoming clear that the Persians were becoming less and less of a threat, especially after the Athenian victory at the Battle of the Eurymedon, some city-states in the League started questioning whether they actually needed the League at all. When some city-states tried to leave the League, such as Naxos or Thassos, they were put down in military actions by Athens, and forced to stay in the League. When Athens moved the treasury of the Delian League from Delos to Athens in 455 BC, the writing was on the wall, and we generally say that in 455, the Delian League became the Athenian Empire. All of this is somewhat ironic because Athens itself was a democracy, and when Athens would put down a rebellion within the League, it would install a democracy in the city-state. But by the mid-450s, it was clear that leaving the League was not an option. Another reason this appeared, at least to us moderns, as contradictory to Athenian values, was the fact that Athenians valued moderation and restraint above all else. They strongly believed that too much or too little of anything was the wrong path, and anything could literally be anything. Emotion or passion, for example. Athenians used this to justify their misogynistic treatment of women, as they believed women were too easily given over to passion, as well as creating a temptation for the men of society to give over to their passion. So in this quote-unquote democratic society, 
Women barely left the household, except, sadly, slaves. The plays of the era reflect this misogyny. Take the play Medea, written in 431 BC by the tragedian Euripides. Spoiler alert, in the play, the titular character Medea kills her children to spite her husband Jason. She gives in to her passion, the opposite of the moderation and restraint a good Athenian was supposed to exercise. By the way, in case you're wondering, that's the same Jason from the Golden Fleece and Argonaut myth. The various Greek city-states often squabbled amongst themselves, but the existence of the League created an extra level of tension, from cities in the Delian League as well as cities outside of the League. Sparta, for example, was wary of Athenian ascension. Let's take a look at the city-state of Sparta, in antiquity called Lacedaemon, which rose to power in the mid-7th century BC. Now, we don't have great contemporary records on the early Spartans. The Spartans themselves didn't seem to write much down, so the accounts we have of the Spartans are generally from outsiders, or even enemies. Even their buildings were, well, Spartan, and so we don't even have much architecture from the Spartans in the way we do in Athens. But it's possible to read between the lines and get some ideas about how Spartan society worked by the mid-5th century BC. The Spartans were divided into multiple categories. Full citizens were known as Spartiates. The Perioikoi class were free but not citizens with full rights. And Helots were state-owned slaves. The Spartans were highly militaristic and trained incessantly. Women trained as well. And while women weren't on the battlefield, they definitely enjoyed more freedom than the average Athenian woman. Spartans were also very religious, and this probably limited the Spartans' range, as they were very strict about observing certain religious days of the year. And while Sparta had two kings, one from the senior Agiad and one from the junior Euripontid dynasties, power was generally held by a council of elders. This doesn't mean the kings were powerless. A strong king, such as the famous Leonidas, who died with 300 Spartan soldiers and a handful of other Greeks at the Battle of Thermopylae in 480 BC, could often be a driving force in politics. But the kings were definitely not the de facto rulers in the Spartan state. I've mentioned in past episodes that the term laconic, as in using few words, comes from the Spartans, aka the Lacedaemons. The Spartans did indeed tend to be a few words, but enemies and ancient writers often used that trait to justify calling the Spartans slow and dumb. Again, we don't have actual Spartan accounts of themselves, but it's very clear from at least the military flexibility that the Spartans showed on repeated occasions that they were anything but dumb. So where am I going with this? I'm trying to break preconceived or popular notions of history. While historians try to be as objective as possible, History is about people, so by that very definition, history needs a perspective. The most objective histories try to include as many perspectives as possible. But history, with capital H and in quotes, is often a reflection of the culture and ideas of the historian writing it. For example, the German philosopher George Hegel saw history in terms of a series of theses, antitheses, and syntheses of ideas. Karl Marx, who was a student of Hegel, 
was a historian who saw history in terms of being driven by class warfare. 19th century Western philosophers painted democratic Athens as the good guys and the Spartans as dumb farmer bad guys. In fact, one of our greatest sources of information for the Peloponnesian War, Thucydides, was more objective in his assessment of the two sides in his books describing the war. But even he had a perspective, as he was an Athenian general in the Peloponnesian War who was eventually exiled. And while he interviewed first-hand witnesses of certain events, even those people had a perspective. Now, I'm not necessarily going so far as to suggest bias. Thucydides really was the first historian to seek out root causes of events, and while Herodotus is called the father of history, Thucydides is often called the father of political science. But my point is that the most objective history comprises many perspectives, and doesn't boil it down to good versus bad. With that, let's get back to Athens. 5th century Athens was a democracy, but what does that actually mean? It means that the Athenians voted on pretty much everything. They'd vote on laws, they'd vote on whether to go to war, they'd vote on who would be the leading general of the Athenian military forces. They'd even vote on who to exile through the concept of ostracizing, writing a name on pottery shards to vote who would be kicked out of Athens for a period of time. The idea behind ostracizing was to keep anyone from getting too much power. Savvy, charismatic politicians could use ostracizing to convince the Athenian assembly to remove political opponents. One such politician was a man named Pericles. If you listened to last episode, a man named Cimon was in power during the years in which Athens was more active against the Persians. As it became clear that the Persians were no longer a threat, in 461 BC, Pericles managed to orchestrate the ostracization of Cimon claiming that when Cimon helped the Spartans put down a slave revolt in 462, he was betraying Athens. What's wrong with helping the Spartans, you ask? Well, by the 460s, Athens saw Sparta as a rival for power, if not overall of Greece, then at least over Athens' growing empire. And while we can never know for sure, there's a good chance that Pericles drummed up anti-Spartan sentiment to knock his political opponent Cimon out of his way. If you think the tradition of using a foreign power as a political tool is restricted to the ancients, think again, as we see the same thing today. For example, American politicians far overplaying the threat of Iran in order to divert attention from internal corruption or just generally grossly unethical behavior for personal gain. Another chilling parallel to modern-day politics is that in 451 BC, Pericles introduced a law limiting access to citizenship and effectively punished immigration, a cruel irony given that he would have been negatively affected by his own law had he not grandfathered in existing citizens. With no term limits and an unlimited well of charisma, oratory ability, and political acumen, Pericles would dominate Athenian politics for decades until his death in 429 BC. And this is another dichotomy I want to point out, like I discussed earlier in this episode. Pericles is often taught about in a positive light as a brilliant statesman leading Athens through its golden age. In fact, the era is literally called Periclean Athens, or Pericles as the orator of the great funeral speech, praising what it meant to be an Athenian. 
as the architect of the grand strategy of the Peloponnesian War, who died tragically early in the War of Plague, leaving Athens in the hands of demagogues such as Cleon and Alcibiades, who were only looking for personal gain and cared little of Athens itself. All that is true, too, and that's my point. Pericles was a complicated figure and can't be broken down easily into hero-villain tropes. He probably did care more about Athens than his successors, but he was also an anti-immigrant, anti-foreign nationalist, who launched a devastating, desultory war that ended up lasting 27 years, and spoiler alert, Athens lost, not in a small part because of its collective hubris. Within a year or two of Pericles taking power, Athens was at war with Sparta in the First Peloponnesian War. Now, this was not the Peloponnesian War. In other words, what we call the Peloponnesian War was actually the Second Peloponnesian War. I'm going to discuss this more in a bit, but for now, know that when I talk about the First Peloponnesian War, I'm talking about the war between the Spartans and Athenians from 460 to 445 BC. When I talk about the Peloponnesian War, I'm talking about the more famous war between the Spartans and Athenians that lasted from 431 to 404 BC. The aforementioned Cimon was a pro-Spartan Athenian, and in fact, he had lived some time in Sparta as what's called a proxenos, which was sort of an informal ambassador between cities. You could probably have called Cimon a Spartophile, as he even named his son Lacedaemonius, which was another name for Sparta. In 462 BC, the Spartans experienced a slave revolt after a devastating earthquake. Cimon took a contingent of Athenian soldiers to help. Once they got there, the Spartans didn't trust that the Athenians wouldn't side with the slaves and sent the Athenians home, with Cimon humiliated by the whole affair, as well as heightening tensions further between the Spartans and the Athenians. In fact, it was this slave revolt that caused tensions to spiral out of control. Athens saw Sparta's refusal for help as hostile, and would eventually allow exiled slaves to settle in Athens after the slave revolt would be defeated. Both sides quickly formed alliances with other city-states, and by 460, the First Peloponnesian War had begun. The war dragged on for 15 years, and while initially it seemed that Athens was going to have a decisive victory, the Athenians suffered a serious hit to manpower and economy in 454 because of an ill-planned attempt to help Egyptians revolt against the Persians, and ultimately the war ended in 445 with no clear victor. What was there was a 30-year truce signed by both sides that effectively acknowledged each city-state's existing hegemony or empires. Another way to put this is that the status quo from before the war was returned. Of course, this meant that other than the treaty, nothing changed to relieve tensions between the two city-states, and those tensions only grew and percolated over the next decade. Neither side trusted each other. They were both fairly well matched in power and neither side liked the idea of such a powerful hegemony or empire in such close proximity. Both sides worried that city-states under their control might defect to the other side, even though Athens' dominion tended to be concentrated more towards northern and eastern areas, and Sparta's in the more westerly and southerly areas. And the anti-Spartan Pericles remained in power through the 440s and 430s. 
Pericles is widely considered to be among history's greatest speakers, and the fact that he was in power in a democratic society for almost three decades until his death in 429 BC gives some indication of his ability to sway the crowds. Another source of tension was internal to the Athenian Empire itself. Several of the city-states did not appreciate being under the dominion of Athens, and Athens would repeatedly find itself dealing with revolts, which probably contributed to a collective fear of losing security, which in turn supported anti-foreign feelings. So while the two sides did avert a crisis or two because of the existence of the truce, it shouldn't be too surprising that the truce was broken less than halfway through its intended 30-year lifetime. In 431 BC, only 14 years after the 30-year truce had been signed between Athens and Sparta, the two superpowers would again go to war. Let's get back to nomenclature for a second. This may sound like I'm splitting hairs, but the nomenclature is important. The fact is, many wars in the history of the world were named long after the wars ended. Furthermore, Many wars are named differently by the different sides that were participating in the conflicts. Now, this should be obvious for wars like the Thirty Years' War or the Hundred Years' War, but it's probably less obvious for something like the Peloponnesian War, which happened over 2,400 years ago. So contemporaries of both Peloponnesian Wars did not call either of the wars the Peloponnesian War. Even Thucydides, from whom we know so much about this period, didn't call it the Peloponnesian War. It was a later commenter on his books that attributed to his work the collective name the Peloponnesian War. But there's another reason besides simple accuracy that we need to be cognizant of how these wars were named, and that is the fact that the very name the Peloponnesian War immediately invokes a certain bias against the Peloponnesians. In other words, the Spartans. Remember what I said earlier about being careful not to attribute good guys and bad guys to the Athenians and Spartans? Calling the Peloponnesian War the Peloponnesian War is exactly the kind of thing that can create bias when studying history. In fact, it was actions on the part of Athens that increased tensions to the point of openly declared war. One action was called the Megarian Decree. It was a decree by Pericles that prevented the city-state of Megara from doing trade in Athenian-controlled ports. This effectively strangled Megara economically, as most ports in the Greek world at this time were controlled by Athens. But Megara was an ally of Sparta. While we can't know for sure the reason or reasons that Pericles announced this decree, there is no doubt that the action provoked Sparta, even if Athens considered it technically legal within the limits of the 30-year truce. Another action was to support the independent city of Epidamnus in a revolt. In fact, this was pretty much the action that kicked off the war. So who is Epidamnus? Greek city-states had a tendency to send colonies out to create new city-states. These new city-states would often consider the original city-state to be a sort of parent state, and would even send out colonists to form new city-states, with relations going back to the grandparent city. One such collection consisted of the city of Epidamnus, which was founded by colonists of the city of Corcyra, which in turn was founded by colonists from the city-state of Corinth. So Corinth was the grandparent of Epidamnus and the parent city of Corcyra, and Corcyra was the parent city of Epidamnus. 
The city of Epidamnus was effectively split in half in a civil war in the Greek Stasis. One half of the city appealed to Corcyra for help, and the other half appealed to Corinth. This put Corinth and Corcyra at odds with each other, and when Corinth lost a naval battle to Corcyra, Corinth resolved to make a bigger fleet of ships. Now Athens, the major and supreme naval power in the area, saw this as a threat. Like the 18th and 19th century British, Athens was determined to keep the Athenian fleet larger than any other two naval fleets combined. Corinth's desire to build a larger fleet could endanger this unwritten rule. So Athens got involved, and in putting warships up against Corinth, Sparta claimed that Athens broke the terms of the treaty. And while Athens would try to make the case that the city was acting legally in these actions, it was clearly acting in bad faith and generally against the spirit of the treaty. Corcyra and Epidamnus were also on the western side of Greece, generally closer to the territory that oriented towards Sparta rather than Athens. To Sparta, this was Athens making aggressive moves in Sparta's backyard. With that, in 431 BC, the Peloponnesian War had begun. The Peloponnesian War was 27 years long and deserves its own episode, so I'm going to stop here. Next episode, I'll be talking about the war itself and the aftermath. Thanks for listening, and see you next time on The Stream of Time.